1: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Real DNA Podcast. I'm not really going to do the intro this time because I've got someone very special to do that instead of me, which I appreciate so much. All I can say is that both of these legends are the best example of leadership, work ethic, discipline, consistency, resilience, pretty much everything you can expect from a great champion as they both are. So I hope you will enjoy the show and perhaps even learn a thing or two because to me, this is another coaching masterclass from one of the greats of our sport. Ivan, talking a little bit about uh, your coaching career, before you take up a job and you agree to do it, what are the qualities you look for?
2: Well, number one thing to me, or one of the few top, most important things is hard work.
0: How do
1: you think the athletes go about the fact that you're training for something, but you don't know when you're supposed to be ready and be prepared?
2: If you look at Roger, I've watched him very carefully because it was part of my job, coaching other players to see what Roger is doing and how well he's preparing. He always comes back prepared extremely well after break.
1: Can you discuss the? training and the ways you did it back in your time compared to now.
2: We a lot of times train on our own and you would go for runs or bike rides and things like that. And now everything is more scientific and more effective as well.
3: This is Char from Boston Bruins, and you are listening to Real DNA Podcast
2: with Daniela Handuchova.
1: Ivan, first of all, thank you so much for your time, and I would like to ask you to start with with everything's going on in the world right now. How is this going to affect the world of tennis? What are your thoughts about that?
2: Well, it's a pleasure to to be talking to you about the, these things, and uh, I don't, I don't really have the answer to that question. I don't know how it's going to affect the world of sports. I don't know how it's going to affect tennis specifically. Uh, these are very difficult times, and uh, things are changing. Uh, if not daily, then uh, definitely weekly. But uh, sometimes even every hour, it's a little different. And uh, uh, we have lost Wimbledon obviously, and uh, now U.S. Open is, they're still scheduled, but are they going to play at the time? I don't really have the answers to that, and I don't think it uh, depends on people in tennis at all.
1: I don't know how you think about this, but to me, I think the biggest concern for any professional athlete is that unknown, and you would know this better than anyone. When you do your training, you always have certain goals, like, okay, this is when I need to be in my best shape, how, how do you think the athletes go about the fact that you're training for something, but you don't know when you're supposed to be ready and, and, and be prepared?
2: Yes, that's a, that's a very big question. And I had a few calls from coaches asking me what, what should they do with their players. Mm. And uh, my answer to that was, well, you have a great opportunity to work on the weaknesses in conditioning, or you also have the opportunity to cure any lingering injuries, but you also have an opportunity to uh, work on the weaknesses in their game. So when they come back, they're better players than they were in February. And whether it's going to be in July or next January, nobody knows. But I think uh, the players which will kind of, uh, with their coaches, of course, uh, look at what they need to improve, make a plan, and then just stick to that plan, are going to come being better than before in tennis. And uh, again, it's very difficult to, uh, to say it's going to be in July or August in Washington, D.C. for the U.S. summer circuit, or it's going to be in January in Australia, somewhere in between, or even later, nobody knows.
1: Mm, and that's that's like we said the most difficult part about it because we are especially tennis players. We are so used to having that training block maybe maximum to six weeks at the end of the season and then off you go for the first tournament of the new year and suddenly you've got maybe three to six months of training and also you don't want to maybe overtrain and not to get injured <laughs> again. so it's it's a tough one I think for any sport to to go about it and something that we obviously, never experience in life yes
2: uh, yes and that's the difficult part that there is nothing to copy it after or nobody to talk to who has experienced something like mm. that maybe maybe and this is just throwing it out there that athletes who has been who have been out of the sport not through injury but let's say through uh, uh, doping violations they that's what they're facing. If, if mm-hmm. you're taught you're out for two years, you're out for four years. Where do they get their motivation to train? How do they prepare? But at least they have a date when they're coming back. Uh, as here, everybody is uh, everybody is in the same boat that they really don't know when they're going to come back and play. And it's going to be very interesting to watch. Also, who comes? prepared and who doesn't come prepared and uh, for example Roger Federer right if you look at Roger I've watched him very carefully because it was part of my job coaching other players to see what Roger is doing and how well he's preparing he always comes back prepared extremely well after break so in Australia Roger always comes he's very quick he's very strong he looks fresh and so on and so on uh, Novak Novak also starts always well beginning of the year in Australia. I think he, I believe he won 7 times now. And uh I may be wrong on the number but I, I 7 is the number I have in my head. Uh and you can't do that if you don't prepare well uh, after extended period of time. So those are the players to watch uh how they're going to come back and they would be in my mind the favorites coming back well, that they would be prepared. However, if it goes on much longer, as you were saying, everybody's ready for their six-week training block, and this may be a six-month training block, mm. uh, are they going to be affected by that negatively? Uh, nobody, nobody has answers. We're only speculating, we can only be guessing. And at what point, for example, older players, right? they can extend their career hmm. because they have been rested now and they can extend the career. However, at what point does it become too long and they can't come back really as strong as before? So those are very interesting questions and it will be very fascinating to observe that what really happens.
1: So why do you think, what, would, what do they do differently, Roger and Novak, that you say that whenever they have a longer period of break, that they, that they come back stronger than ever. Is Would you notice something that they do differently compared to anyone else? Why why is that?
2: I don't have the answer to that because I don't have the knowledge how they prepare, whether, mm. uh, whether they do it in mountains, whether they do it on the tennis court, whether they do it just in the gym. I do not have that information, so I can't answer that.
1: So just in general, would you think well, it's it's tough to say because we don't know. But do you think Roger, Rafa or Nole, which one does benefit from this the most? Or it's hard to tell depending on, like you said, if it goes for too long, then it doesn't favor anyone of having a break, especially the older player.
2: Well, I don't think it's uh, pleasant for anyone. Let's put it that way. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I I think it's bad for the sport. It's unfortunate. It, it is what it is, but uh, I don't. I, I really can't tell whether it's fav- whether it favors one player or one kind of player, uh, or any of those three. I just know that when there are training blocks, who comes well prepared after the training blocks, and uh, Novak and uh, Roger certainly do.
1: on the training subject i gotta say honestly this is something i was looking f- forward the most to to talk about with you is can you discuss the training and the ways you did it back in your time compared to now um also the hours that players are spending on the tennis court and in the gym compared to um when you were preparing because i or, uh, i mean i you know i have when i played i could see the notice that suddenly players were spending so much more time in the gyms and not as much on tennis court what do you what are your thoughts about that and if you can compare it a little bit
2: well tennis has uh i played in the 80s mostly and so this is uh 30 years later 35 years later uh tennis has moved and became more scientific as any other sport has. So the preparation, the knowledge of the physios and the strength trainers, physical trainers, is much higher than it was in the 80s. That's normal, right? Yep. Um, we a lot of times train on our own and you will go for runs or bike rides and things like that. And now everything is more scientific and more effective as well uh what my days looked like yeah uh, wake up do uh do about an hour preparation before i would go on the court do some cardio some stretching uh then spend two hours on the cord, rest a little bit after lunch spend two to two and a half more hours on the cord and uh, do more cardio and uh, massage and it's time for bed uh, so it's it's a full day for me it was two full days half day three full days and a day off that was my, my week when I was training. Uh, I can talk about some players I see in the locker room and in the gyms. I would have to say that they probably spent anywhere between one and two hours of being in the gym, their bodies being worked on before they step on the tennis court mm-hmm. these days. So yeah. people, people don't really see that. People don't understand that the, the fans and so on. Uh, what goes into it but uh, players are very diligent they work very hard on the court and the players are understanding that prevention of injuries is also very important
1: yeah i'm so glad you brought it up because as you said maybe people that are not as close to the sport as we are don't appreciate and don't realize what it takes to to be a tennis player and how many hours that means on the court in the gym (laughs) on the physio table so and of course you are one of the pioneers to show us Show us, show us the way how to <laughs> how to do things. Um, You're Iv- very kind, <laughs> Ivan. One thing um, that it's it's a fact, it's for sure that you've motivated thousands and thousands of athletes coming from the part of the world where we grew up, and not only in tennis but in many different sports. Can you take us back a little bit and just uh, give us an idea what it was like for you to? grow up and play tennis back in Czechoslovakia
2: well it was great um, it, it was great because uh, as soon as i was done in school i would go to the tennis club and stay there till it's dark
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, anytime i could be on the court i would be on the court anytime somebody else didn't show up i would jump on that court and uh, same thing in the winter uh, in the winter until i was about 15 years old uh, i was allowed to or. Uh, able to play maybe three hours a week because we had only one indoor court mm-hmm. but uh, I would go there from school and sit there and if somebody was sick, somebody went on ski vacation I would always jump in there mm-hmm. so I would end up playing three hours a day right <laughs> but uh, there were also days where I would sit there for six, seven hours and uh, I wasn't able to get any but uh, that that happens
1: <laughs> It but sounds I- so similar to, to my childhood, <laughs> yes. exactly the yes. same
2: <laughs> but uh, just growing up in Czechoslovakia in the tennis environment uh, was, uh, I thought, very, very good for us. Um, there were no distractions mm. and you know it. As soon as you cross the, the gates of the club, you were the club's child. So uh, people took care of you if necessary, if you needed help. And if you misbehave, they would tell you, hey, that's uh, over the line. Don't do that again. Mm. Uh, it's okay.
1: You mentioned school there twice. How important was it for your parents to to make sure that, you know, the education was part of your upbringing as well? Because I think to me, that's something I'm so grateful to my parents that, yes, obviously tennis was my life and uh, all I could think about was that, but they did make sure that uh, the school was actually number one priority back then.
2: I, I'm very fortunate that school came pretty easy to me. Mm-hmm. So it never really... Uh got me in trouble in school that I could not play tennis because of bad grades or anything like that. But uh, uh, honestly, I would have to say that it was a lot more important to my parents than to me.
1: <laughs> well, that's always a good thing because, you know, then you are following the right path. What do you think it makes the fact that there are so many players coming from Czechoslovakia? Would you, Can you t- say there is one thing that makes them all similar, that what they have, that there's been so many, especially from uh, from your country, from Czech, uh, the last 10 years, I mean, so many incredible gr- girls as well as guys. What is it that makes uh, the Czech or Czechoslovakian players so tough, in your opinion? Well, I think there are
2: few factors, and I'm probably not going to name them all. Um, Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic and Slovakia now had historically a lot of good coaches mm. so the the programs were good and the kids had very good fundamentals and then also by uh, older players having success it brings in the younger kids and they have somebody to look up to and and it shows them it's path to success and it shows them that it's possible mm. when you see uh, in the late 60s and in the 70s, Jan Kodesh was the best player in Czechoslovakia, and he wins the French Open, and uh, he wins Wimbledon. And you as a kid obviously want to be as good as the best player around, and you see it's possible. If he can do it, why can't you do it? Mm -hmm. And I think the history of the game and success of the game is very, very important in uh, countries like ours.
1: Well, thank you so much for being the reason for my generation to pick up a racket (laughs) and to that, because you definitely showed us that it is possible. So (laughs) I know I've thanked you many times before, but I can use this opportunity again, how much you've meant to tennis in Czechoslovakia in general, but but as I said, not only in tennis, but in many other sports that it is possible. But
2: it's a little more complicated than that, because under the communist regime, the The sport wasn't transmitted when uh, Martina played and I played and uh, only people could get results. But on some level, it almost made it even more special for the people to follow it.
1: How difficult was it for you to come over to the States and basically, you know, being always the foreigner in another country? I think everyone coming from our part of the world can relate to that, that. It's not easy because the mentality, obviously, is very different and uh, what were maybe some of the obstacles you had to go through? Well,
2: it's not not easy uh, to be changing your life, but Mm. we had tennis and that was the common language and uh, you walk into the tennis club, you're a tennis player, you walk to a tournament, you're one of the tournament players, so that made it much easier, it would have been much more difficult otherwise.
1: Talking a little bit about uh, your coaching career, before you take up a job and you agree to do it, what are the qualities you look in a player for? Because the name of the podcast, it's called The Real DNA, because I'm always curious to know what are the human qualities that help us to get where where we want to be and what do you appreciate in a player when uh, when you start to work with them.
2: Well, number one thing to me, or one of the few top, most important things is hard work. Mm. Uh, I really need to, if I'm going to work, I need to find a player or the player needs to find me who is hardworking player. Uh, then I always say half jokingly, but half seriously that I interview the player as much as the player interviews me. Mm. Why? Because I have to be convinced that I am able to help that player. To be coaching somebody and not be able, don't believe myself that I can help because of whatever reasons, uh, and they they don't have to be bad reasons. It's just, you know, the player is playing this way and is not really capable of changing the style, and I believe in different style, how this player should be playing. Well, how do I coach that player then? Mm. If the player wants to play defensively but is uh, is very tall and really doesn't move that well, well, that's not going to work. And I, if I talk to the player and the player is convinced about it, uh, I, I'm the wrong guy for him. Mm-hmm. And so I have to be convinced, number one, myself that I can do it. And I have to be able to convince the player of the philosophy I believe in. And then we can work together. Those are very, very important to me.
1: It was a privilege to witness everything you achieved with Andy Murray. What was for you personally the proudest moment when you were really, really proud of the work you guys did together?
2: I was always proud, not of one moment, but how Andy fought on the court. He never gives up. Andy never gives up. And Andy was willing to change his game a little bit to become more aggressive so he's not only defending but that he also can can hurt the opponent and I think that was the turning point in his career and when he did that uh, I was always proud of him because yes you can lose a match because you go for things and miss but you're never going to win a big match if you don't go for things and he understood that and he was willing to do that and that's where I was really proud of him
1: with both your players, Andy Murray and Sasha Zverev, their parents are involved in their tennis big time as well. How important is it for parents to know where their place is so that you could do your job the best way you can? I think it's a good message for a lot of the, lot of the teams out there that they do have their parents involved with their t- tennis as well
2: yes uh, uh let's be clear with Andy the parents were not involved at all when I was involved
1: okay so Judy uh, was it, not part in, of the it,
2: no uh, when uh, when I started working with andy uh his mother Judy was not involved at all, and his okay. father just came to a few tournaments here and there so uh there was uh, there was uh, no uh parental involvement at all uh how important is it? Well, let's start with this. The parents of all kids bring them, or most athletes are introduced to the sport by somebody. In most cases, it's the parents. Uh, Whatever the motivation is, whether it is I want my kid to exercise, I want my kid to be on the team, uh, I want to get my kid out of the house so I have three hours every afternoon to myself. I, I, I don't know what they are, right? But if the parents are involved in longer term and you see them on the tour, they have done a fantastic job with the kids because it's very, very difficult to get to the tour and the percentages are so small Mm. of kids who are successful. And when I ran a couple of academies, I always said to the parents, look, I can promise you your kid is going to get better. I can't promise, but I will say it's likely your kid is going to get free college education because of the, of uh, the sport. However, if you want me to promise that the kid is going to be top 20 or top 50 in the world, I can't promise that. And please go somewhere else. Mm. Okay, uh, there becomes a point where the parents, if they are not extremely well educated in the sport uh, are for lack of better terms they they're out of their league and that's the point where the player needs to be taken care of somebody who has been there had the experience and so on and so on it's a very very difficult uh, time in the parents time parents life and the player's career and uh, sometimes it's missed it could happen too early it could happen too late And in neither case, to find the right time is extremely difficult.
1: I'm so glad you brought it up that, like you said, the chances that a player can become top 20, top 30, I mean, it is so hard and there are so many things on the way that can change what's going to happen. And I, I strongly believe that's why going back to that education part of every player growing up, it's so important because it always just gives them another option in life if in case it doesn't work out right?
2: Absolutely, Uh, if if, uh, the kids can study and have something to fall back on that's why going to college and playing college sports is very very good for them.
1: French Open is the next Grand Slam (laughs) that would normally happen on the calendar. I would love to talk a little bit about that and your first Grand Slam victory in a major ever in 1984. How important was that for your career? And uh, just talk us through a little bit through that magic year in 1984.
2: Uh, Well, it it was obviously a very, very difficult match Mm. uh, against uh, John McEnroe. Um, I was yes, going to sorry
1: I, that that was the second part of that question what were you thinking two sets to love down four two down in the third set to be able to change that match around
2: uh, actually I don't believe that's correct uh, I was two sets to love down but and four I was two not with a break down, down. Four, two down. Uh, four three in the fourth with the break
1: oh again I the got third. the stats wrong every single time we do these trivia questions yes. you are always the right one Oh, well, but
2: but uh, it, Uh, It it was difficult even before the match because I played John twice uh, coming up to the French Open at Forest Hills and and in Düsseldorf at the Nations Cup. And John beat me, I believe, two and three and two and four like that, uh, both times. And that's what the first two sets were at the French Open. However, somehow uh, I was able to get into the match. And after the third set, I felt that John was tiring and that I was uh, better prepared physically than he was. And I was actually quite annoyed that I was behind in the fourth, but fortunately I was able to to uh, come back. And then in the fifth, I was really annoyed with myself that I was not able to pull away early because John was uh, clearly not the same player. He was in the first hour, hour and a half of that match. And I thought I should have won earlier. Hmm. And uh, but. That's how I was feeling during the match. I thought uh, as longer the match went, better it was for me.
1: When you compare all three French Open victories, would you say the first one was the most special one, or I mean, it's hard to pick one, but just just compare all three and uh, why and in what way they were special to you.
2: Each each major winning for the first time is special. Uh, more special than the others. And uh, so, yes, the first one was more special than the other two, even though I really enjoyed the other two. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing which kind of is interesting, everybody always says, well, that changed your career. Because I lost four finals in the Grand Slams before that. And they say that changed your career. And I always... I say, okay, whatever, right? But I don't think about it like that. I thought, okay, yeah, that was great. But I also thought that by coming strong into the finals often, that eventually it will start coming my way. And that's what happened at the French. But I feel till today that even had I lost that match, that I still would have won my share of uh, majors after that. Hmm. And uh, so... Is that the most important match of my career, as people are suggesting? I don't think so. Uh, there were others which were more important, and uh, that's the way I feel about
1: it. So, if you had, so in your opinion, which one was for you the most important, or the one that you cherished the most, a match of your career?
2: I I don't have one match which I can <laughs> Yeah, chose, I know. <laughs> That's a
1: tough one to pick in no. so many different uh different
2: I, I did enjoy matches. People always or athletes always talk about being in the zone. Yep. Um that that does not happen, at least it didn't happen to me. That often, maybe five or six times.
1: I cannot believe you. Sorry, I interrupt you here, Ivan, but I cannot believe you said that because it's exactly what my next question was going to be. <laughs> the quote that I listened to most from all my coaches was exactly this what you had to say one time that throughout all your career, five days you said were the days when you felt like, okay, everything's clicking.
2: <laughs> yes. But to me, and I I personally don't know how you get into the zone or how it happened. I could not put a finger on it. However, there is a thing called subzone and you can train your mind to help you get into the subzone more often than you normally would. Uh, When you ask about special matches, one match comes to my mind which I really enjoyed I played the finals of the ATP finals against Mats Wielander at Madison Square Garden one year. And I just could not do anything wrong. I beat him 6-2, 6-2, 6-3. And I just could not do anything wrong. Everything just happened the way I wanted to and when I wanted to. And that was one of those days. Uh, I know Mats doesn't like to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, that was one of the best matches I ever played.
1: So going back to what you said, I think this is such an important message, not only for tennis and players and athletes, but for life in general, that yeah, it's going to be tough. And like you said, out of all the hundreds number of weeks, you were number one in the world, you say five times, you felt like you couldn't miss the ball. How strong of a message that is not only for tennis, but for life in general, to be able to accept that we are going to have tough times and there are going to be obstacles. And it's about how we go around them, right? I mean, through them.
2: Well, um, I'm going to stay out of the life because there are people who are much more educated to talk about that than I am. But in sports, I will say, and I, always, I have five daughters, three of them played the very competitive golf, college golf on high level and so on. And I always said to them, anybody can win when everything goes their way. But the champions win, when things don't go their way. And, you know, if if I'm in the zone five times over 17 or 18 years of playing career, that means most of the time I'm not in the zone and I still need to learn how to win. You hear people talking about it during the Grand Slams, that you always have one or two bad matches in the Grand Slam, but you have to find a way to win it so you can win that Grand Slam. Whether it's first round or the semifinals, does not really matter. You still need to win that match to win the Grand Slam, and uh, it's very easy to uh, to look good and uh, and uh, play well when everything goes your way. But when things don't go your way, whether you're not feeling well, whether you have little injury, whether whether the opponent is uh, playing uh, crazy well, whether you get some bad calls uh, or bad bounces or anything you still need to find a way to win.
1: Would you say the word acceptance would uh, would be the right one to go about it? I, I always remember this when I saw you. I, I think it was US Open and was towards the end of my career. And I think I just kept telling you how tired I'm these days after playing matches. And the first thing you told me is like, just accept it that you are not 20 anymore. And to me, there was such a wake-up call that I just realized for the last six months, all I've been saying is that Yes, I'm, I'm getting tired. And, and I think that's one of the, the reasons that you guys, the champions, you were able to accept everything that, was going, that you were going through and just go with it.
2: Well, I think uh, I wouldn't call what you're talking about acceptance that I'm just going to be more tired.
1: No, but uh, to accept the fact that that's what's happening right now.
2: Yes, I, I would call it analysis mm-hmm. and then then make a plan how to eliminate it or improve that. So, if, for example, as you're saying you're tired every day after you have been playing, okay, accept that that's the fact now. However, try to figure out a way to make it better if I don't know in uh, in uh, at some point in my career, my forehand didn't feel right. Okay. I have to recognize that it doesn't feel right. It is one of my biggest weapons. Yes, I can still play okay with the other weapons, but it's one of my biggest weapons. And to be really successful, I need to get it back. So now I have accepted the fact that it's not working well. And I have to come up with solution to that. And then I worked towards the solution. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's more recognizing than accepting. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes. Okay got it. Well, I wish I was still playing. (laughs) 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 Um, Just one last thing uh, on the uh, French Open Roland Garros time that we obviously not going to be able to witness live. What was there that you enjoyed about Paris and just going back uh, year after year to, to France?
2: Well, I never really got to see much of mm-hmm. Paris during the <laughs> during the Roland Garros because you need to yeah. refresh, you need to regenerate and so on and so on. And uh, I really enjoyed going to a club called Théro Pigeon where we always practiced. Tony Roach and I would go there in the morning and practice for a couple hours uh, on the days off. And then uh, on, on the match days we would warm up over there and then go... Either rest or maybe even play some golf for nine holes or go for a match. And I enjoyed Thierry Pigeon because there was nobody there. We had our own court. There were no other players. Uh, Everybody always wanted to practice at Roland Garros those days. So that that was fine with me. And uh, we just stayed to the side. And I think it made me much pressure mentally than I would be if I had to go to Roland Garros every day.
1: Did you just say that you would play nine holes on your match day? I'm so no, glad no, no. to hear on, that.
2: <laughs> no, on, uh, on your day off, on, right? On the day off. <laughs> yes, yes. We did not want to stay in the hotel room for the entire afternoon. So we were looking uh, for things to do. Whether it was a movie or something, maybe. But uh, uh, did not want to stay in the hotel room the entire day.
1: I think that's why so many tennis players love to play golf. Because it's such a great way to take our mind away from tennis, at least for those nine holes. And... Uh, and just to think well, about something else.
2: I'm a strong believer that being in your room and watching TV or mm. these days uh, reading the messages on the phone all the time and things like that is not good for you that it tires you mentally. And you need to do something refreshing. And what's, what's healthier than a nice walk for a couple hours outside?
1: Absolutely. Totally agree with that. Was never a fan of staying in the, in the room as well. So go for tennis? If you have, I don't know if it's actually possible, but which one do you think is more difficult? If, if we can actually put it that way. Uh,
2: I think they're both difficult. I think all sports are difficult. There is no such a thing as an easy sport. So they all have the, both of, both of the sports golf and tennis have their challenges. And uh, they're different. Tennis is much tougher physically. I think golf is tougher mentally. In in tennis, I can have bad 45 minutes and lose the first set, 6-2, and still win the match easily. If I have bad 45 minutes in golf, I'm probably out of the tournament. So, yet in tennis, you can get tired physically. In golf, it's unlikely you get tired physically or you shouldn't. So, they have their challenges, uh, physical and mental, both of them, and uh, they're completely different sports.
1: One more sport I'm going to throw right there at you. Ice hockey.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Can you just talk to us a little bit how much you love the sport and uh, if you follow it or, or anything, really?
2: I follow it. I love ice hockey. Uh, I have been brought up watching ice hockey. Every Friday at 5 o'clock our home team would play and I had my spot at the stadium where I would go and watch the game. And uh, even here in America, I uh, watch ice hockey. I m- miss ice hockey right now, clearly. Uh, but I watch ice hockey. I was very happy on Saturday. They were showing a lot of uh, different milestones uh, uh, or games where Wayne Gretzky reached milestones, and I was watching Wayne Gretzky. And uh, I- I'm a big Wayne Gretzky fan, and I'm big Conor McDavid fan. And uh, I actually stopped and watched how he plays and replayed some of the some of the parts and uh, i said to my wife you know i have been watching this for three hours now <laughs> and it's amazing how similar those two guys are they very rarely make a bad pass they see the ice better than anybody else on the ice, except mcdavid does it at much higher speed because it's 30 years later Mm. But, uh, so I was very happy Saturday watching those games.
1: Well, I'm very glad you mentioned Gretzky there and going back in the history because I feel like you will need to do some digging here, Ivan. You know how you always throw some trivia questions about Heizoki at me, right? Yes, yes. So, I thought I could do with a little bit of help from someone very special and I will throw a few right back at you. You okay. ready?
2: Hopefully.
1: <laughs> All right. So here are the questions.
3: Thank you, Daniela. Before I start, I would like to say this is absolute pleasure and honor to be part of your podcast. Um, and Ivan, thank you so much for everything you have done for the sport, for millions of people. And personally, for myself, um, you were huge motivation and inspiring story uh, for for all of us, so thank you so much for for that. So Ivan, I have uh, two questions for you. Um, First question is name all three European captains to hoist Stanley Cup. And the second one, try to go all the way back to 60s. If you could name first ever Czech player to play in the NHL. The first Czech player ever being allowed to go play in the NHL. I give you a little hint. Uh, Scotty Bauman has something to do with it. Um, so good luck.
2: Ahoy, Ivana. It's Marin Gabarig here. I'm a big fan, by the way. Uh, I hear you're uh, great in uh, NHL trivia questions. So here is one for you. When was Wayne Gretzky traded from Edmonton Oilers to Los Angeles Kings? If you know the whole date, that will be great. If not, a year is enough. Let's see what you got.
1: Um, okay.
2: Uh, I will start. I will start with Marian Gaborik. Uh, that was August 8, 1988. I just watched an hour-long program on it on Saturday, okay?
1: Oh, wow, that was a quick one. It's a... <laughs> that,
2: that was the easy one, okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was I was with Wayne actually two days before that in Los Angeles, where so I played exhibition with John McEnroe. No
1: way. Uh,
2: he didn't say anything, but he wasn't the same guy, so, so, so I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what.
1: Oh, wow, so that that was a question spot on then.
2: <laughs> that was a very good question. Uh, who was the first Czech player to play in NHL? Uh, I believe it was Jaroslav Jirik. Uh, he he played for Brno and he played for Detroit Red Wings. Uh, he was the first player, I believe, the communists allowed to go and play.
1: I cannot believe you got it right. Hate to admit it, uh, but of course.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, that was an easy one. Uh, To name the three European captains, uh, I think it's Niklas Listrom, Zdeno Chara or Chara and the third one I do not have from top of my head, but uh, I would have to uh, probably think longer about that one.
1: Okay, so you got it 99.9% right. I mean, okay, I will never ever (laughs) question your ice hockey knowledge, that's for sure.
2: Well, I, I love ice hockey <laughs> and I'm blessed with good memories. So when I read, I read the article about uh, Jaroslav Jirik uh, when, he died, uh, when he died in the plane crash, he had a little plate and he died in the plane mm. crash. That's a few years ago and there yeah. was an anniversary of that. Maybe I want to say in the last three months I read an article where it repeated that he was the first player. Mm. And I also believe he wore number 16 in Brno.
1: Ivan, thank you so much for your time and incredible insight on so many different topics we went through today. And um, I just hope that we can see each other somewhere at the tournament side or on, on a golf course very soon. And thank you so much for being guest on the Real DNA podcast.
2: Well thank you for having me and uh, let's hope we can see each other soon at the tennis tournament uh, hopefully US Open.
1: There. i hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the real dna podcast don't forget to subscribe either on spotify apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from